We're going to find ourselves in 1 Samuel 17 this morning. And uh, before we go there, would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with heavy hearts. Is um, We gather for the joyful responsibility of worshiping our great God and Savior, the Creator of all. We... we uh, we, we hear the news within 24 hours of another uh, mass shooting, whether it was 20 people killed in El Paso or another nine killed overnight in Dayton, Ohio. And Father, we just recognize what your word has to say about just the vileness of sin. People that are so frustrated with the brokenness of life that they take it out on uh, others who have no guilt bearing upon their situation... And Father, we know that sin is not new. It's as old as Genesis chapter 3. But we never cease to be amazed at its heinousness. So Father, I pray that with great humility that you help us to understand that we indeed are part of the problem. But through Christ, that we alone have the opportunity to be part of the solution. There is no police force, militia, uh, legislation that can change men's hearts. Uh, but your word can. And we pray today that as we confess our sin, we know and we claim the promise that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is, uh, it is an interesting thing, even on the lips of Christians. You hear, how in the world can this happen? And, and friends, it's an easy answer. We are Sinners, And as we continue in our series this morning, uh, talking about how superheroes can't save you, we come to uh, that kind of superhero, that, that persona in the Bible, who is mentioned more, over a thousand times, more than uh, Abraham and Moses combined, more than the Lord Jesus Christ, King David. And if I ask you, uh, because there's uh, a ton of information on David, uh, we can find out about him hiding in the cave of Adullam, him feigning madness and fighting with the Philistines against Israel for a brief period of time, his encounters with Saul when God apparently had given him into his hand, yet David was not going to stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. There are many stories that we can remember related to David, yet the ones that are recalled the most are, and this should not surprise you based on human nature, his greatest achievement and his greatest failure. And yet when we juxtapose both of these together, we see something that David uh, viewed both about himself and God when he was a young man and when he was, shall we say, more seasoned, a bit more mature, it's important to note that David, as this hero of the Bible, is uh, called in the narrative about him a man after God's heart only once in the Old Testament, and that's before he's even anointed as king. Because later on in David's life, it's really hard for us to affirm what the Bible has to say about him. How can a man who is a murderer and an adulterer and a liar and a thief be a man after God's own heart? Yet in Acts 13.22... Long after David is gone, the New Testament reaffirms this statement about David 
because the trajectory of his life, despite the ups and downs of his sanctification or his sin, the trajectory of his life was to honor and to glorify God. And whether he was serving God or serving himself, he did it with great passion. And so this morning, we want to look at a couple of these stories and and just kind of rehearse um, what we can learn about David and in a way that is kind of odd to remind ourselves of something about the goodness of God, if I ask you, hey, if you agree with me, raise your hand that God is good. Is there a hand that wouldn't go up? Yet how often do we forget it? Have you complained about God this week? Has He forgotten your situation? Has He not shown up on time? Has He not given you what you wanted? We are so tempted to complain, and yet that is not good for us, and it doesn't bring glory to God. And so in 1 Samuel 17, we have an excellent opportunity to see young David's view of God and himself. And what's amazing about this story is those two perspectives, his perspective of how he viewed God and his perspective of how he viewed himself, are flip sides of the same coin. This this one story tells us both what, what David thought of himself and what David thought of God. And so in 1 Samuel 17, uh, we're not going to read the entire chapter because we're going to look at a couple stories from David's life. We find out that David is the youngest of eight brothers. Um, Maybe not the biggest family that you can, um, pun intended, conceive of, um, but it's a big family. He's got eight brothers, and David is kind of the overlooked and undervalued youngest of these brothers. Uh, We're told that the three oldest have joined themselves to Saul and have gone to war with the Philistines. And so Jesse, David's father, sends uh, David as an errand boy to go check on the three oldest, most preeminent brothers. And so David uh, uh, rightfully leaves the sheep in someone else's care and carries uh, some cheese and some some wine and some bread to the, the older brother's commanding officer. And as he approaches, he hears the taunts of a Philistine champion that says, Hey, Israel, haven't you come out to fight? Then why are y'all quivering in your boots? Send a man out to fight for me. And instead of all of our armies wiping each other out, you pick a representative, and I'll be the representative for the Philistines. And we can eliminate a lot of bloodshed, do this a little bit more gentlemanly. And uh, if I win, we win. And if your guy wins, well, then we lose. And so in 1 Samuel 17, verses 8 through 11, we hear what David hears when he first walks up. It says that Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out and drawn up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What we didn't see here in this passage is that Philistine is the heavyweight, uh, the Philistine, Goliath, is the heavyweight champion of the world. He's he's enormous. He is seasoned. He has uh, probably killed men with his bare hands. He is a champion. And none of the army of Israel is 
ready to go, that is, until someone who is not even conscripted as a soldier shows up delivering bread. The bread boy walks up and he hears these incredible taunts. And just a few verses down below in verse 26, we see that David hears this and he kind of looks around to see who's volunteering. Who's volunteering? This guy has just mocked us and our God. So who's going to go out and teach him a lesson? Anybody over here? Anybody over here? There's none. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who, doesn't go fight this Philistine, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised dog that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's fired up. The problem is he's more fired up than all the soldiers are. I mean, how, and think about this for a second. If you were a soldier and you're going, all right, I'm not the biggest, strongest, most impressive guy, you know, uh, I'm five foot nine. There's a lot of guys taller than me. So, you know, you just assume that whoever's the, (laughs) it's kind of like the family photo when you line your kids up by height. You just kind of assume whoever's a little bit bigger than you is going to, you know, so number one says no. Number two says no. By the time it gets to number eight, you're like, well, if the seven people in front of me said no, I must be a fool to say yes. And that kind of mass pandemonium, mass fear spread throughout the entire army. And now this young whippersnapper is going to come and insult all of us. We've already been insulted by the champion. Now this boy is going to come and insult us by implying that we're cowards? Well, you are. Sorry if that hurts. So David's words caused some consternation among his brothers, who basically, this is a good southern word, they shush him. Stop talking like that. And yet, good proof that the, um, good proof that the army of Israel were good Baptists. Uh, word travels fast. The prayer request, bless your heart, makes its way to King Saul. And David is brought before King Saul, and even before David is properly introduced, David walks into the tent of the king, and he's like, I'm your huckleberry. I'll go fight. (laughs) I'll go fight the giant. Uh, uh, Excuse me, what was your name again? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to fight. And Saul does the exact same thing that the army does. He attempts to shush David. You're just a boy. And this guy, man, he's been a warrior since he was a boy. And here's what's amazing. Here's where we begin to see what David thinks about God. David is not full of himself. That's not why he wants to fight. He's full of God. And in verses 34 through 37, he says something amazing. David said to Saul, Your servant keeps sheep for his dad. And when there came a lion or a bear, and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered the lamb out of his mouth. And if it rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So David is not just rehearsing his history, saying, look at my resume. I'm a... a, 
bear killer. I'm a lion killer. No, no, no. This is not braggadocious. In verse 37, David said, this is so key. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. He's an animal. Doesn't even deserve to be dignified with human speech. He's just like these animals. And Saul said to David, go. And the Lord be with you. Well, everyone has been terribly unimpressed with David. I mean, when Samuel shows up to anoint him, David's not even brought home to meet meet the the traveling prophet. He's left out tending father's sheep. Um, He's not chosen for war. The the army's unimpressed with this bread delivery boy. Saul is unimpressed. What do you think happens when he steps out on the battlefield and Goliath sees him? He's like, don't you have any men that can come fight? You're sending me children? You're sending me this, this handsome young man. Man, it's a tragedy for me to have to come and stomp him. Such a bright, beautiful young man. But you don't have any men? And it says that Goliath curses Israel for sending a boy to do a man's work. But what are you going to do when the men don't work? What other option do you have? And so Goliath doesn't just curse Israel. He curses David by his gods. So he says, listen, by the power of Dagon, I'm going to feed your bones to the birds. What do you think about that, boy? And David doesn't seem to be quaking in his boots like the rest of the army of Israel. In verses 45 through 47, he gives one of the most inspired battlefield speeches of all time. In verse 45, it says this, Then David said to the Philistine, The Philistine insults him and curses him by his gods. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you armed alone, with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. Wow. God has never fought a battle. Going up against, you know, the Mike Tyson of his era, and he's going to jaw at him before they even fight. What are you doing here? And yet we see these incredible things about David's view of God. For David, God is the all-powerful and praiseworthy creator of all. We see this replete in this story, and we see it throughout the testimony of Scripture. David is stymied by Israel's reaction. You know, they say nobody's supposed to put baby in a corner. If nobody's supposed to put baby in a corner, no one's supposed to talk about Israel the way this Philistine has. Somebody needs to go teach him a lesson. And David's confidence, as we said, is not in himself. The God that delivered him from other circumstances, the bear and the lion, will be the God that delivers him from this incredible champion. David is not self-confident. He is, uh, to the highest degree, confident in God's Ability to save. He has high and lofty 
views of God. Later in his life, we know that David's exalted view of God's greatness and his incredible mercy and his love and his providence uh, inspire him to compose song after song, praising God for his many excellencies and perfections. We call that the book of Psalms. Israel's praise book, David wrote most of them. His view of God is that God can do it. God is worthy of all of our praise. And and there is no question in David's mind that he's going to be victorious. Not because he is great, but because God is. This raises a really powerful question for us. You know, you remember when you first started dating your spouse. It was, was, I think the phrase y'all used was the bee's knees. It was something else. Make, it'd, make the, it'd make the goose pimples come out on your arm, make the hair in the back of your neck stand up. And yet there's just something that happens that over time, it's not that you love your spouse less, but that, that initial hold in her hand doesn't, doesn't make the hair in the back of your neck stand up anymore. You might not even have any hair anywhere close to your head anymore. That could be the problem. And, and, and there is this cooling of passion that doesn't just happen with your spouse, it happens with God. Is God just as great and praiseworthy today as he was when you first met him? The Bible says, oh, please, come back to your first love. And I I don't doubt anyone who's gathered here today. I don't doubt your love for God. What I wonder for yourself and for, for myself as well is whether you love him as passionately as you did before. Because it becomes an inconvenience to sometimes do things where you never would have thought serving God was an inconvenience ever before. What's David's view of himself? Well, David, for his part, is a very glad and humble-hearted servant who is ready to work for the glory of God. He's not full of himself, he's full of God. And he is eager, despite his young age and his inexperience, he's not full of himself. He's full of God and he's ready to do whatever he can to glorify him. He was the youngest And he was overlooked. Um, And yet, here's the thing that's amazing about David. David David beats Goliath. And then what does he do? He's already been anointed as king, but Saul is the king. God has not removed Saul from office. David has been secretly anointed. He wins this incredible victory, which gets him in hot water because everyone starts singing a song about David. Ooh, Saul has slain his thousands, and David... Tens of thousands. That doesn't sit too well with Saul. He's the king. He's supposed to be number one. David goes back to tending sheep and writing songs, which it's interesting what David does with his obscure years, with his harp and with his sling, make him the champion of Israel, make him a savior, a deliverer. And so here's the thing, man, and I would say this to young people. Every young person thinks that when they graduate high school, they need a job paying $75,000 in corner office. Um, man, let God use those secret years to form in you what He wants to form. Because you don't know when He will call your number, you just want to be prepared. And David was happy and humble enough to serve in whatever capacity he had, whether it was killing giants or whether it was taking care of dad's flock. He goes back. His humble nature allows him to return to faithful devotion to whatever his meager task was. And I have to admit, after slaying Goliath, Tending dad's sheep kind of seems to be beneath you. But not for David. He's content to do whatever God wants. 
While his previous service had been obscure, it's in these hidden years that God allowed him to be proficient, which brings him into Saul's court to sing to him, which allowed him to become proficient with the sling, to protect the sheep, to kill Goliath. And when the Spirit elevates him to the place that he becomes a deliverer for Israel, all those many years of obscurity come to perfect fruition, the right person at the right time, in the right place, but not in a way that is self-focused, but in a way that is extraordinarily focused on the glory of God. Friends, it is so easy to become so focused on self and so opposed to other people that you show up at a Walmart and you shoot other people because you've had a bad day. It's rather obvious why in his early years, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. Elevated view of God humble view of self. And yet when David gets older, his view of God and self shift. And I don't think that David ceases to love God. I don't think that's it at all. I just think he comes to love himself more. Because where all of his passion and his energy had been focused upon serving God, later on, after he's been king for a while and after he's won some amazing victories, David really thinks it's okay to serve himself. And he does it in a most tragic way. As he gets older, he gets a little more accustomed to the limelight. Didn't like it at first. Something begins to change in David, however slight, and I don't think that he even noticed it at the front. It certainly didn't happen overnight, but he loses, he loses just a degree of his vigilance. As, as a trained soldier, he loses just a, de, a degree of his focus. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, his most tragic fall is recounted for us in terrible detail. 2 Samuel 11 starts in a very uh, interesting way. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1 says this, In the spring, the time when kings go out to battle. So we, we already know something from this verse. Kings lead troops. It happens every spring. I guess you've got to get through the winter. they got to clear the roads. And then the kings lead their troops out to battle. So David, instead of going, sends Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You know what? I've fought enough fights. I've trained my troops well enough. I think I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to be a little lazy. I'm going to have a little leisure. I'm going to take it easy. And when he remains behind in his palace, he sees something that he shouldn't. Now, the problem is you can't necessarily avoid seeing what you don't want to see. You'll see stuff you don't want to see. The problem is it doesn't stop with a look. It progresses to... Something other. Martin Luther used to say, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You're going to see things, but when you dwell on it and when you act upon it, now you've got a bird nest for, for hair. He says, no, no, don't do that. You can't keep the birds from flitting around. And so David does something terrible. He remembers what he's seen, and he takes what he sees. He sees and he sleeps with, and he impregnates the wife of one of his best friends. There you go, best friends? Oh, yes. 
Yes, yes. If you look at them, oh, where is it? It's in Chronicles, First Chronicles 20, 21. Uh, there's a listing. All the names of David's mighty men are listed. And the very last person in the list of David's mighty men is Uriah the Hittite. This was not an unknown soldier. This was not, you know, um, name, rank, and serial number, some guy that you've never heard of. David knew Uriah. When David was on the run from Saul, Uriah was there uh, fighting among his, his chief 30 uh, mighty men that were with him. And, and, and listen, it's not just bad enough that David takes and sleeps with, because it's not less bad if she didn't get pregnant. It just goes down hill from here. So Bathsheba sends word, which uh, David didn't want to hear, I'm pregnant. Well, David has three schemes, because don't, don't we all have schemes to get out of sin? Anything to avoid having to confess. Let's get Uriah here. Let's call him back for a weekend leave. And um, maybe while he's home for this weekend leave, he'll have natural relations with his wife, and he'll think that the baby is his. Man of God, coming up with diabolical schemes. Well, this uh, foreigner, because he's Uriah the Hittite, not Uriah the Hebrew, proves to be more righteous than David, the king of Israel, man after God's own heart. Uriah sleeps at the gate to the palace. Says, uh-uh, I ain't going home and sleeping in my bed. If all the troops, if all the armies of Israel are out sleeping on the ground... I'm going, to protect, I'm going to protect the king's honor by making sure nobody comes into the palace. Uriah proves to be so faithful and loyal to David while David is plotting, stealing his wife. Well, first night of his weekend leave doesn't go well. So, you know, David says, let's have a party on Saturday night and let's get Uriah drunk and send him home. Doesn't happen. Uriah gets drunk, but he stays at the gate to the palace and does not go home. So scheme number three, David writes a note to the general and ironically gives it to Uriah to deliver, who faithfully delivers the king's message, having no idea that the king's message says, Joab, I want you to attack and put Uriah at the head of the troops. And when the fighting is most fierce, I want you to withdraw and just don't tell Joab. I need him to die. And David doesn't pull the bow and release the arrow that pierces his heart and ends his life. But David, make no mistake about it, has plotted Joab's murder. People die in battle. That's not what this is. This is not, you know, we have to weigh the cost. And we lost 100 troops, but we wiped them out. And so it was, no, this is something other than that. This is a foolish fight. And friends, I want you to realize, sin is never a simple thing. David has to sin after sin after sin, and he has to like plot this and think about this, something no follower of God should ever do. So here, listen. Let's just run through the Ten Commandments here real quick. David begins on the rooftop of his house by breaking the Tenth Commandment. He covets his neighbor's wife. Okay, that's bad. That calls for confession right there. But breaking the ten by coveting his neighbor's wife leads to him breaking the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. Now that he's coveted and now that he's committed adultery, now he has to break or he feels like he has to break the eighth commandment, which is thou shalt not steal. 
He is about to take Uriah's wife from him, which leads to him breaking the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not murder. He breaks the ninth commandment by bearing false witness. Yeah, Uriah, you've been fighting really hard. That's why we want you to come home this weekend. It's false witness. <clears throat> he breaks the fifth by dishonoring his parents with this terrible sin. I can't imagine any parent that would be pleased with David's uh, conscription to uh, join with Satan in such a diabolical plan. David has broken every commandment referring to love of neighbor from 5 through 10. And of course, we remember that our sin is primarily not against other people. It is against God. And so with the exception of the Sabbath law, David breaks every single one of the Ten Commandments. Friends, your sin will never make your life easier. It will just, when you finally come to the end of your rebellion and you're willing to allow God to make what you have done clear, you will hate what you have done so much and, and you will be so embarrassed and you will find it to be so grievous because sin is not simple. Why did David do this? I don't know. I mean, he's a king. Maybe he felt like he deserved it. He'd been faithful all of those years. You know, isn't it okay for him to chill out for a little bit? In his earlier years, he was oh so ready to serve God. And yet, without any outside influence, David seems so focused on serving himself in this passage. This is by far David's most well-known sin, yet it's not even his worst offense. As a result of this offense, uh, both Uriah and the child that Bathsheba bears die as a result of David's sin. But in 2 Samuel 24, we're not going to turn there. In 2 Samuel 24, again later in David's life, it's not enough for David to say, you know, the battle is the Lord's. We don't need sword and spear and javelin. What he said as a young man, as an old man, he says, hey, Joab, General Joab, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to take a tour of our whole country, and I want you to number the number of fighting men we have. Now, why do you need to number the number of fighting men? Listen, there are all kinds of logistical issues. You know, if you ever have to mobilize the army, you need to know horses, transportation, food, water, all kinds of legitimate things. That's not David's motive. David wants to know how mighty his fighting force is, which belies what? That his trust is not in God as his fighting force anymore. His trust is in what he has done. And it's a terrible story, 2 Samuel 24. Joab says, David, we trust God, not the army. And it says that David prevailed against his commander and forced him to take the census, to which God saw this as a breach of faith. So God decided to bring a punishment upon David. He said, David, you've got a choice. I'm going to let you pick your punishment. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of running from your enemies. Or you can have three days of pestilence. So which would you pick? Three years, three months, or three days? David says, I'll choose uh, option C. Three days. I don't want no three years. Three days, I'll cast myself upon God's mercy. And it says that, very similar to what happened in Egypt, there was some kind of destroying angel, some kind of pestilence that sweeps through his entire nation and ends up destroying the lives of 70,000 Israelites because David didn't obey God. This is your leader. This is your king. This is your president. So what do we find is old David's view of God and self. Well, I think it's simple. By trusting in his own strength, 
David learns that his most serious enemy is not some foreign power, not Goliath, but his own heart. Isn't it so easy to objectify what your problems are? Your problems don't have anything to do with you. It's everybody else. It's so easy to look at something else and not acknowledge your own contribution. In a a massive leadership study, a man by the name of Jim Collins wrote a book, uh, it's older now, called Good to Great. And he uh, looked at what makes great organizations different than good organizations. And while there's uh, many things that could be uh, evaluated, he said one of the top seven insights that he found was that good organizations always look out the window with their problems. So manager sits up in his office What's the problem with our organization? Why isn't it better? He looks out the window and he says, it's those people out there. We have an inefficient process. We don't have good training. There's something out there. What makes a great organization great is that great leaders don't look out the window. They look in the mirror. And they say, how can I add value to this institution? Listen, brother, believer, sister, Christian... Do you know that your biggest problem is yourself? I said, you're not going to hear that from Oprah, America's um, chief false prophet, followed by uh, her friend uh, Joel Osteen. You're not going to hear it from them. No, you're not a problem. Sin doesn't exist. There's just social ills. No, 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 no. You can be a great neighbor. You can um, cut your grass or have Craig cut your grass regularly. You can conscientiously pooper scooper your pet. You can make sure that your garbage cans are not left out too long. Uh, You can make sure that you never violate any noise ordinances and pay your taxes on time and still be a hell-bound sinner. We, We aim for all of this moral reform, and all it does is change the window dressing without changing our our heart. David, by trusting in his own strength found out that, yes, Goliath was a terrible enemy, but a far more insidious enemy, a far more powerful force in his life was the depravity of his own heart. So David learned some terrible things about himself. But even in his old age, he learned something even greater about God. And it's this, that God's great power is not most clearly demonstrated in his conquering of people, but in his forgiveness of sin. Friends, this morning, it sounds audacious that based upon your faith in Christ and His suffering in your place, that God has had the audacity to say, everything you have ever done bad in the past, everything you will ever do, every bad thought you have had, every negative attitude, it's all forgiven. That doesn't sound like a square deal. And yet Christ's sacrifice is so incredible that God can say, Every sin of those who trust in Christ is gone, cast into the deepest sea. We see, we see David come to an amazing understanding of this in one of the most well-loved passages of all of Scripture. Psalm 51, and it says specifically that Psalm 51 was composed on the occasion of being confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. And we could spend wonderful time this morning pondering Psalm 51. But instead... There's a song, which is essentially a paraphrase of Psalm 51 that you're going to hear. We've got a recording of it. You'll see, you'll see the words on the screen here in just a second. I want you to listen to the words of this song and see if they reflect the tune in your own heart 
because of what God has done for you. There are so many amazing truths in this passage. One of the truths that we have to maintain is that we have to be vigilant. How we start is no sure indication of how we finish. We, we must seek to walk with God every day and to be vigilant in our battle against sin. And yet to end with a note on our sinfulness is not the appropriate thing. To know that the grace of God in Christ and the forgiveness that He offers completely, not just partially, obliterates our sin is an amazing thing to think about. Every vile thought that you've had that you've not even said, God's forgiven it. That's amazing. Now, that's not an encouragement to think vile thoughts. No, no, they're sins still, even if they don't make it out over your lips. But yet you are offered an incredible choice this morning that like David, you can try to cover your sin or in grace you can allow Christ to. And only one brings freedom. I love this last verse for the song that we just heard. Because of the grace that God has given me, sinners then shall learn from me and return, O God, to thee. Savior, all my guilt remove, and my tongue shall sing your love. Touch my silent lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall praise accord. Is that the desire of your hearts this morning? To teach what it means to confess and to repent and to trust in you, Lord. Father, we thank you this morning that you are even greater than our highest thoughts. Father, David had it right when he was young, and as he got old, he swerved just a bit off the path. And yet, you proved yourself to be always faithful and even greater than David could have even first conceived. Father, that is true for us today. We pray that you help us to understand what it means to know and to trust you. If there is someone here today that does not feel like they know God, that today could be the day when they turn from their sin and they trust in Christ. But yet, Father, for all of us, this can be a day where we return to our first love, grateful for what you have done for us in Christ, and determined to be an example of what it means to turn into trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.